15 through 19. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. It is good to be with you. Uh, would you pray with me as we just begin? Jesus, thank you so much for this gathering that we have this morning, for the chance to sing songs about you, to have our hearts and our imaginations expanded by the words of you, for a chance to tell your story anew. Because we do, as we read this invitation into full, joyful life, God, would we respond? Would we say yes to the invitation to join you and to receive our full inheritance? God, speak to us. Lead us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and I've been out for the last couple of weeks uh, and am back today, so it's good to be with you. Uh, we are in a series walking through the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a series of small churches in the province of Galatia, or what is now modern Turkey. And oftentimes, when someone is writing a letter in the New Testament, there's some crisis, there's some event that provokes the penning of the letter and the sending of the letter. And in the book of Galatians, the crisis that is occurring and that has provoked this letter is that there is a contest about what the gospel is. 
The gospel, which we often talk about as the central message of our faith, the subject, the object, that most basic truth at the very bottom of our faith, the news that's proclaimed that calls us home, that message, Paul had preached it, the people of Galatia had heard it, but then through a series of events and teachers and experiences, that message has become muddled and contested. There is different versions of this good news story that are being offered to the world. And this isn't just an issue of believing the right things or knowing the right ideas. For Paul in the book of Galatians, this is an issue with deep ethical ramifications. Because as the gospel gets lost, the way the community does life together starts to dissolve. So there becomes this really intense infighting within the church of Galatia. Grown men start getting circumcised, and Paul's like, hold up a second. This is a painful medical procedure no one should have to undergo as a 30-year-old. Man, get your gospel right. And maybe worst of all, thank you, maybe worst of all is that the community has begun to divide racially. Jews and Gentiles are no longer worshiping together in the churches of Galatia. The meals have become quite literally segregated. When Paul sees this, sees Peter backing away from Gentiles, backing away from worshiping with non-Jewish believers, Paul's language is, Peter, you are out of step with the gospel. These are gospel issues. And because you have lost the gospel, because this message, this subject of our faith, this good news story, because it has become lost, because you have forgotten its depths, because you have added to it, it is leading to massive ramifications in your community. Not just wrong ideas, but disunity, racism, segregation. Your worship is so different than it was before. And for Paul, these are gospel issues. Now, as we're reading the book of Galatians, even the passage that Lo read for us just a moment ago, it is full of language that might seem strange to us. It's really deeply, it's like deeply having this conversation about Jewish Torah, Jewish customs, Jewish law, in a world that feels quite different to us. Today, we're not debating kosher laws. We're not debating circumcision. We're not debating the kinds of finer points that the book of Galatians is debating. And so it might feel strange to read this and be like, how is that relevant to the world in which we live? But I think in the argument that we have been making over the last couple of weeks is that if you can pull back those unique cultural conversations, kosher laws, circumcision, Jew and Gentile relations, if you can kind of get underneath that to the thing that's happening at the very bottom of it, What we have found is that the experience that the church in Galatia is having is one that we are actually quite familiar with. We are all deeply familiar with looking at the story of Scripture and then not seeing it reflected around us in the way that we understand. We are all deeply familiar in the divides that can happen over theological convictions and beliefs. We are all deeply familiar with the kind of disunity that can happen in even a community of friends and believers. Like, we're all deeply familiar with that kind of experience. And I think today's word, we are deeply familiar with what it feels like to have values, beliefs, customs that run into someone's different values, 
beliefs and customs. And I think likewise, we are used to and have experience running into someone else's values, beliefs, and customs. It feels strange and different and hard to understand. And that is the conversation that Paul is leading us into today, is what happens when we value something that is really good, but we might value it a little more than we should. Paul is not going to criticize the things that we value necessarily in this text, but the question that he is interested in asking us is what is the things that we value? What are the things that we care about? What do we think they mean about us as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as adults? What do we think those things offer us and what do they do in the world? And here's what I mean. I was trying to find a way to illustrate this to you. And I can just use an example from my own life of when I was a jerk, uh, which is everybody's like, no, no surprise. Um, <laughs> when I was 19, I was interning for my very first church job. So it was my very first serious church role. I'm interning, uh, which means that I'm doing everything from making coffee to preaching sermons for youth groups, right? Like, it's a church internship. And at the same time, I get really compelled theologically by this idea of Christian nonviolence. Become really captivated by this ethical idea that at the very heart of the gospel is a God who so loves, he wins by loving. Now this idea becomes so compelling to me, so beautiful to me, that I begin to talk about it and to preach it and to argue it and to fight people about this idea and to coerce people into this idea. Somehow the notion that God so loves the world, he wins by winning became permission for me to say, God so loves the world, I can be a huge jerk and argue anybody into this conviction that I want, which was problematic because my boss at the time was a military chaplain um, who did not love having this conversation with me every single day of his life about whether his whole existence was ethical or not. Now I tell you the story because I really believe this theological idea still to this day, really believe this idea that the love of God moves in nonviolent ways in the world. I believe it is an expression of the gospel. So something that's very close to who God is, something that's very close to the the center and object of our faith. This is gospel stuff. But as an immature 19-year-old, I had really missed the point of this idea that is so close to the heart of God. I was immature. And in some ways, that's exactly what you expect a 19-year-old who has been given too much uh, power and authority to do, to be argumentative. (laughs) And I was. And people extended me immense amounts of grace. But if I still did that, and I am in my 30s or 40s, and I'm arguing that way with people and trying to compel people in that same way, all of a sudden those immaturities would feel much more detrimental to the community in which I live. I'd missed the point, and as a 19-year-old, it was okay to be a bit immature, but the older I get, the more I miss the point, the more there are consequences to that. And if I was doing that in this community, I think some of you would pull me aside and be like, hey, you kind of missed the point of that God so loves. Maybe it's time to grow up a bit. I think that's exactly what's happening in this passage in Galatians 3. Paul is going to talk to the Jewish people of this church about something they love and care about deeply. And what he's going to say is, hey, you have missed the point of these things that you love so much. And it is time to grow up a little. 
It's time to move into a kind of maturity that doesn't reject these things, but it recognizes what they are for, what they point to. Now, Paul begins this section uh, in Galatians 5, or Galatians 3, verse 15. This is where we'll pick up. Paul's writing to the church, and he's kind of changing his tactics in this letter and changing the topic. He says this, Brothers and sisters, I'll use an example from human experience. No one ignores or makes additions to a validated will. The promises were made to Abraham and to his descendants. It doesn't say, and to the descendants, as if referring to many rather than just the one. It says, and to your descendant, who is Christ. So what's happening in this moment, in this kind of like dense theological sentence, is that Paul is continuing a conversation that he's been having in this book about what the gospel is. Where does the gospel begin? What is this story? And in this moment, what he's saying is he's like, hey, we have to go a bit back. And remember that this is an old story that began a long time ago, before the law, before all these things we're arguing about. This is an old story. And if we can remember what this story is, maybe we can remember what the point of the whole thing is. So this is a story that began before the law. It began with Abraham. In verse 8, Heather preached this two weeks ago. Paul says that this was the gospel in advance. He says this in verse 7 through 8, just for a little bit of context. He says, Those who believe are the children of Abraham. But when it saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, that all Gentiles would be blessed in you. So Paul is going back and saying, like, what is this story? What is the point of all these things that we have been talking about? What is the promise? What's this gospel hope? And he says, fundamentally, it's this, that God would enter the world through Abraham, restore the world, make it right, and form a family of people from diverse places, ethnicities, stories who belong together. That's the promise that began all the way back with Abraham. That's the story that we're continuing to tell and Nothing changes it. That's the promise. That's the point. And then he goes on to say this in verse 17, which is a wild thing to say. He says this, I'm saying this. I'm reminding you what the promise is because of this. The law, which came 430 years later, doesn't change that. It doesn't change that. It doesn't invalidate the agreement that was pre- previously validated by God so that it cancels out the promise. It's hard for us to get our mind around how much of a doozy this moment would be if you are a Jewish person listening to this letter. For the law was the very foundation of Israel's shared collective life together. So for him to say that this law doesn't change the promise, they'd be like, what? No, of course it does. That's exactly what it does. It makes us the people who can receive the promise. Like, that's the whole point of this story. We do kosher. We get circumcised. We live holy so that we can receive the promises of God. That's the whole point of the law. That's why it was given to us. That's why we received it. And Paul's like, the law doesn't change anything. And then he says in verse 18, if the inheritance, this promise was based on the law, it would no longer be from promise. But God has given it graciously to Abraham through a promise. 
Now, this leads to a really important question that Paul sees coming, which is, why then was the law given? Which I think is probably a question a lot of us as Christians ask when we read the Old Testament. What, why is this thing here? Why was this story given if the gospel has always been this good news about Jesus, that all people would be included? Why was this thing given? And so Paul knows that question is coming, and he says this. So why was the law given? It was added because of offenses until the descendant would come to whom the promise had been made. And then he goes on to say this. I'm just going to add this in. Before the coming of this faith, this promise, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. We'll pause here for a moment. This is a super interesting set of sentences. The Greek phrase for guardian helps us understand what's happening in this passage. The Greek phrase for guardian is the word pedagogos, which if you went to school to study teaching, you might think of the phrase pedagogical, education, teaching. Some translations, if you look at this word, they'll use the language of schoolmaster. The one that I'm reading here says guardian. Some will say tutor. And each of those phrases kind of captures the idea that is expressed in this word, that there is some kind of teacher, some kind of schoolmaster, some kind of guardian who is educating, guiding, and teaching something. And the Greek phrase, the word itself actually referred to a very specific position in a Roman household. There would be a pedagogos, a servant or a slave, whose job was to care for children, to educate them, to keep them safe. So maybe the best word to use in this moment would be, the law was a nanny. The law was a nanny in order to guard and to guide. So what Paul is saying in this is that the law is something that was good, but it was always limited. It acted like a nanny or a tutor because we were childish. We were immature. The way to think about the law is this, that it was given— in the same way that laws are given to kids today, the same way that a parent would construct any laws for a child today. When you have young kids, you're pretty clear about what you do and do not do. Don't touch that. Don't hit your sibling. Don't put the fork there. That's dangerous. Right? These are really important laws. If you don't give these laws to kids, well, I would have put the fork where it does not belong, and I would have not been here today. I needed clear definitions. I am the reason the law exists. The older I got, though, or maybe I should say this, the more mature I got, that didn't always correspond to age, the more mature that I got, those laws begin to change, right? Don't leave the driveway becomes don't bike past the street, which becomes be home by 10, which becomes you have to pay for your own car insurance if you do that again, right? The laws, the boundaries, the rules they change in proportion to the maturity of the person that they are applied to. As kids get older, our rules, our boundaries have to get older. That's the only way that kids are prepared for life. It's the only way that kids begin to live life. It's the only way that we can live life. If we still submitted to our parents' one-year-old boundaries, that would be weird. 
And Paul is saying in the same kind of way, the law that was given to Israel was given because of offense, because of immaturity. I really like the way uh, Eugene Peterson in the message translation says it. He says it this way. Until the time that we were mature enough to respond freely. We were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek teeters, tutors, with which you are familiar, who escort children to school, protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. I like that. The law existed to help children get where they were supposed to go. They're the boundaries, the protections, the walls around a child while we are immature that help us get where we are supposed to get. The other thing I've been thinking about, the other way of thinking about this, is the law is boundaries that we give for a child, or in a similar way, it's like the way in which we treat or address a wound. If you break a leg, you have to wear a cast. Right? And that cast restricts your movement. It stops you from living as free as you would want to. But the purpose of that cast is so that you move safely and do not re-damage your leg. But also the purpose of that cast is that you would get it off. The purpose of the cast is not to live in the cast. The purpose of the rules that you give the children are not to live with those rules forever. The purpose is always to get somewhere, to be healed, to enter into maturity. That's the purpose of the law. That is Paul's point in this moment, that the law protects, it helps us, it guides a child into maturity, it helps an injury to heal. But he says, now we have received the promise. He's talking in this language about a will, and he says that will has not changed, and now the inheritance that was promised to us when we were children, oh, it's come, it's here. We're adults now, and the inheritance is ours to receive, so we should be moving beyond the law. Not because it's bad, not because it was ineffective, but because it did what it was supposed to do, get us to adulthood. So don't put the cast back on. Don't go back to your parents' boundaries and rules. To do so is to restrict yourself again. It would be like going back to elementary school, living under childhood rules, or moving backwards. I think that's easy to say. It's easy to hear Paul say these things about moving and growing beyond the law and receiving the inheritance that Christ has promised. But it is much harder to do that in real life. I've told you this story before. You probably remember it. You've been here a while. And a few years ago, I tore my ACL while skiing. Um, So word of warning if you just moved here. Uh, And I had to wear this like really large brace. That was awesome. It made me feel very safe. It kept me from re-injuring my ACL. But it was really restrictive to wear a giant medical brace on my leg. Like, you have trouble getting in another car, and you can't, I, like, was, had to be carried on the stage sometimes because I couldn't move up the stairs. <laughs> no one carried me up the stage. We're not that kind of church. <laughs> but the doctors, 
really wanted me to take the brace off, like pretty early. Like if, you, if you've ever injured yourself or you're a medical professional, you, you know this. They want you to take the brace off pretty early because they want you to begin restructuring your knee. They want you to begin to heal. They want you to begin to risk on it. And they also want you to begin to trust yourself because they're like, we've done the surgery. Like we know what we're doing. Just begin to walk on it. Begin to move. But that is a really nerve-wracking experience if you felt the pain of moving the wrong way without an a brace on. So you take the brace off, and I remember like the first couple of activities we did. Like we went snowshoeing, and every step I took was like this. And I was like, if I lift it too high, my leg's just going to fall right off. I think that's how, <laughs> that's how this works. And you have a few experiences when you move in a way that is weird, and because your knee is still weak, though healing, it hurts still. And so the interesting thing about the brace is I would move in a weird way, and I would want to put the brace back on because it made me feel so safe. The brace made me feel so secure. It restricted my movements. It made it so much harder to do any of the things that I loved, but wearing an ACL brace made me feel very safe. And I think we do something very similar with the law in Scripture. Is it restricts us, submitting ourselves to those kinds of provisions, submitting ourselves to those kinds of obligations. But it makes us feel so safe. Like we know exactly where to step, and we know exactly what will happen when our foot hits the ground. And yeah, we can't move as freely as maybe we would like, but we know that we're not going to get as hurt as we would have if we didn't have that brace on. I think in this story in the Galatians, it's exactly what is happening The law makes them feel secure. It makes them feel in control. It makes them feel like they have a sense of certainty. And yeah, it stops them from worshiping with the Gentiles. And yes, it stops them from eating all the food that they would like to eat. And yes, they have to continue undergoing this very painful medical procedure. But it makes them feel safe. They know exactly where they stand. They know exactly what's happening in the world around them. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. And that's a deeply securing kind of experience. And for us, we might have our own versions of this, our own safety mechanisms, our own tools for control, our own systems for certainty. And the tricky thing about the the things we use for control or certainty is that they almost always come from something that's really beautiful and really good. Like Paul never criticizes the law. He criticizes the way people use it. He doesn't criticize his own tradition or his own history. He's a Jewish man. He loves this tradition and this history. He never tells anybody to stop doing it, which is interesting. He just says what you're using it to do is problematic. You think that it makes you safe and secure, and all it does is keep you from other people. It's the same way with us. We have these values, these cultures, these customs, these histories, these stories, these tools, these coping behaviors that make us feel safe. They often come from something that is really good, but they have become a bit restrictive. They have become more than they should. We have lost the point of them. And so instead of being free— Instead of experiencing all that God has for us, instead of receiving the inheritance, the promise that Paul talks about, we continue to go back, put the cast back on, go back to our parents' house, submit ourselves to the rules of our childhood. 
when the whole point is that we would grow up and receive what has been promised to us. There's this G.K. Chesterton quote that I really like that I think sums this up very well. He says this, The more I consider Christianity, the more I have found that while it established a rule and order, which it has, he says the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Does the order, the systems, the tools of control, the mechanisms of security we have, do they give room for good things to run wild? What does that look like? What does it mean to grow up? What does it mean for good things to grow wild? What does it mean to live into healing? What does that look like? Paul goes on in this passage. I'm going to read from the message here. He says, but now you have arrived at your destination, right? The law was trying to get you somewhere, and now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe. Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. What he's saying is that the law, the nanny, the tutor that we have been raised with, that protected, that guided us, that kept us safe, it has been replaced with direct relationship with Jesus. It is now our connection, our reception, and the power of the Holy Spirit in us that guides us into life, not that clean, restricted life before. Sometimes the Bible will call it the mind of Christ. Sometimes it will say that we're clothed with Christ. But I really like the way the prophet Jeremiah promised it would happen in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way, This is the brand new covenant that I will make with Israel. When the time comes, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they'll be my people. They will no longer go around setting up schools to teach each other about God. There will be no nannies or tutors in this scenario. They'll know me firsthand. They'll know me firsthand. And the dull and the light, the smart and the slow, I'll wipe the slate clean for each of them. I will forget they ever sinned. God decrees. Think about it like this. If we continue to use our cast imagery here, if the law is a cast that helped us get to a place of healing, and if the promise is healing, then I think mature life means that we live out of being healed. We live out of our healing. We live out of the fact that we are loved. We live out of the fact that we belong. We live out of the fact that we are experiencing God and continuing to experience God. We begin to risk in faith on that injury that it is actually healed and we begin to move in less restricted ways. Christian maturity means to live in light of our relationship, our connection, our belonging, our experience with God. We once lived in the cast and our life looked like cast life. And before the cast, maybe we lived out of our injury, our woundedness, 
And the way we engaged the world was trying to protect that injury and trying to move in ways that kept that injury safe and move in ways that stopped us from hurting that injury. And sometimes we hurt other people trying to protect that injury. And sometimes we did things that now we see as a little bit problematic, but we were trying to protect that injury. And God's like, well, what might it look like if that injury wasn't there? How might you begin to move? How might you begin to treat those around you? What does healed life look like? I think Christian maturity means we live out of the healing that we have received. We live out of the love that we have received. That is beautiful, good news. But as we've already named, it is also quite challenging news. There was this really beautiful Atlantic article this week um, about the anxiety that young children are feeling today. And according to research, young children are feeling more anxiety about growing up than they've seen in previous generations. So there's more anxiety about like, the nature of adult life than there has been in previous generations, which in many ways makes sense. You get to see how difficult it is. And millennials keep using the phrase adulting. So I think that just creates anxiety in young people. And they were like, this anxiety, it, it, the way that it's expressing itself is like a, a, is, a, is a fear of growing up, a fear of taking on those responsibilities. And I think that we as Christians do exactly the same thing when it comes to Christian maturity. I think we experience quite a bit of anxiety about what Christian maturity would look like. What would it mean to grow up in this thing? What would it mean to live out of the love of Christ? What would it mean to trust the Holy Spirit within us? What would it mean to receive the inheritance that has been promised to us. I think that maturity, it feels frightening because, yes, it is less controlled. It feels less certain. That's true. But it is also more free. Paul will go on in Galatians 5.1 to say, for freedom... Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, as the option's ours. God will never stop loving you if you want to continue to wear the cast. The consequences, less freedom. Missy, I think this is the invitation of the gospel from Paul's letter today. It is an invitation to be healed. It is an invitation to be whole. But it is also an invitation to live out of that wholeness, out of that healing, out of that maturity. It is an invitation to receive the promised inheritance in Christ. An invitation to grow up. And yes, that is less certain. And it might produce anxiety. And that is okay. God promises to be with you. Sometimes the greatest adventures are the ones that produce the most anxiety, but they are also the greatest. And that is the invitation of the gospel in this moment, to leave behind those things that are childish and to step into adulthood, a life of freedom. Missio, what if we said yes to that invitation? What if we responded to the invitation of Christ? It might feel risky. It is. That's why it's called faith. 
It is an act of faith to step without a brace. It is an act of faith to leave the security of childhood and to step into adulthood. But what if we took it? What might happen in your own life? What might happen in your own mind? What might happen in this community? Miss you in a moment, I'm going to pray. But as I do, would you just hold that question? What if we said yes to the invitation to grow up, to mature, to live out of healing and to wholeness? Will we say yes to the inheritance and the promise of Christ? Will we act in faith and truth that what God has done and said is true? Let's pray. Jesus, today would we hear again the gospel announcement and would we say yes? Yes to the healing and to the wholeness and the life with you and the restoration and the belonging. But would we also say yes to the maturity and the growth and the living out of healing and living out of wholeness and living out of belonging? Would we leave behind the things that enslave Would we leave behind the things that that we continue to submit ourselves to because they feel secure but restrict our lives? And would we begin to experience the freedom that you are trying to give us? God, we want to be free. But help us. In your name we pray. Amen.